0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. It's so great to be back in the second greatest city in Asia. It's really good to be with you guys. Um, i uh, <laughs> that's, that's thats how you win people right at the start, you know. Um I, uh, I bring greetings from Hong Kong. Who's been to Hong Kong here? All right, awesome. You are all invited. Anytime anybody comes up to us in our church in Hong Kong and says, hey, we're moving to Singapore, uh, first thing we say is, like, that's awesome, awesome that you're going to Singapore. The second thing we say is, you've got to go to the city church. And um, any time that somebody leaves this church and comes to Hong Kong, Daniel says the same thing. He says, oh, you got to come visit the Vine. And, and so we really feel like there's this kind of partnership between the Vine and the city. Um, and like Daniel said, 10 years ago, um, I was here and just sharing hearts with Joy and Daniel and just experiencing their love and their life. And I was deeply impacted by their ministry. Um, they were the first people to invite me overseas to speak, actually. Yeah, you really were and, and uh, i 'm just super grateful for the way that you 've spoken and trusted into my life and these guys are um, like when this um, I love you it 's going to preface what i 'm about to say with that um, when When people talk about the church in in Singapore in Hong Kong, they mention daniel 's name like Daniel has a reputation and a profile. That is far beyond what we might imagine, what you might imagine here within this local church context. He has something that he carries in his spirit, him and joy, uh, in the kingdom of God in Asia. And I just honor you. And I'm so, so proud of what God has done in your life. Um, And I've just met Andre and Amy. And these guys, you know what? The beautiful thing that we have here in this church is the passing of the generations, And I'm, I'm here um, deeply honored that my founding pastor, Tony, is here. Uh, Tony and I don't get to travel that often. Um, and Sorry, I will get on to preach at some point, okay? Bear, bear with me. But Tony and I, like Tony saw me when I was like a... He actually knew me when I was about 10 or 11 years old. Saw me as a 16-year-old. Saw me as an 18-year-old. Saw me as a broken 20-year-old. And believed greater things in my life than what was currently happening at the time. And so he has passed on a baton generationally to me in leadership at our church. Daniel has passed that baton to Andre, and I honor that work. There's something very kingdom-minded in the passing of the generations. Um, I went and listened to the last three messages that Andre preached here at the city, and I was blown away at the gift that God has given this church. This man, here's the beautiful thing about Andre, and this is very rare. He's a man who's passionate about God's Word, passionate about theology, passionate about getting things right, studying, researching, and learning. And he's also filled with the Holy Spirit. And those two things don't often happen, trust me. And he walks that out before you. You guys are so incredibly richly gifted in somebody who can bring the Word of God like he does and marry it with the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's something Andre said a few weeks ago that deeply impacted me. He said this. He said, Pastor Andrew is a really cool looking guy. (laughs) And then, and then he added this, for his age. (laughs) Andrew Gardner is a really cool looking guy for his age. That's like giving somebody a compliment and then taking it away again, straight away, right? Right. Generational heart is what you're talking about, right? All right, all right, all right. (laughs) I was listening to that on the way to work. I was like, what? I'm going to bring that up when I get there. I'm going to open my message with that. Um, But there's something else that he said. Something else that's really amazing what he said. He said, (laughs) He said his desire for 2019 for the city church is this, that we would practice together the ways of Jesus in our city practice together the ways of Jesus in our city. I want to speak today on one reality that will stop you from doing that. I want to speak today about a reality that the enemy, a strategy that the enemy will use to stop you practicing the ways of Jesus in your city. I want to talk today, actually, in picking up a little bit on the emotional spirituality focus that you guys have been in, having a healthy emotional spirituality in your lives. I want to pick up on that, and I want to talk today about hurt, disappointment, regret, shame, and failure. Oh, it's going to be fun. If you want to leave, the exit is right over there. Hurt, hurt, disappointment, regret, And shame and failure are the most powerful tools of the enemy to hold you back from being able to practice the ways of Jesus. I want to frame what I want to speak about by sharing a story. A few years ago, uh, a number of years ago now, I was at the Hillsong Conference. Has anyone been to the Hillsong Conference here in Sydney, Australia? Five of you. Great. More need to go. It's awesome. I was there in 2011. That year, they had 60,000 people registered for the conference. 60,000 people were signed up for this conference. They were hosting it at the uh, the main Olympic stadium downtown in Sydney. And at this stadium, they were able to fit 30,000 people into the stadium. So they had a problem. They had a venue of 30,000. They had 60,000 people signed up. So here's how they solved that problem. They decided to have two back-to-back main sessions in the morning, and then one in the late late afternoon and one in the evening. So literally, they could get 30,000 people into the stadium, do like a a, a main session, get 30,000 people out, get another 30,000 people in, and do exactly the same main session again, almost back-to-back. I mean, can you imagine the logistics that are involved in doing something like that. When our church signed up, um, there was a team of about 40 of us that were going to the conference that year, and we had signed up, and they had assigned us a specific main session to go to, of course, right? So maybe the first one in the morning one day, and then maybe the afternoon one the next day, and whatever, like that. And so we had our specifically assigned places and services that we had to go to. And um, it's, it's an amazing experience being with 30,000 people worshiping Jesus all in the same room. And, and obviously Hillsong has such a gift in worship. But there was one session in Thursday that because I wanted to meet with a certain pastor and kind of do some networking, I wasn't able to go to the session that I had been assigned to go to with the rest of our team. And so I asked some of the leadership at Hillsong whether I could go to the afternoon session rather than the morning one that I had been slotted into. And and by grace, they allowed me to do that, and that was fantastic. So I actually, as a pastor, this was an incredible gift. Because although we had our team of 40 with us, and I love that team, and that was great, This was the first time where I would be on my own, no one else knows me, completely anonymous with 30,000 other people that I hadn't even seen in the conference because they were a part of the different cycle that I could actually just worship, be on my own, receive whatever the Holy Spirit wanted. I was super excited about this one main session. I get in there and 30,000 people around, don't know anyone, sitting in this row. And the band starts to play. And it's one of those moments where, a little bit like this morning, when the band starts playing, the Holy Spirit starts falling and moving. And I remember, like, just everybody has their arms in the air. I've got my arms in the air. We're praising away. And immediately, within about 30 seconds of the worship starting, I get a word for the woman standing in front of me. Now, I want to give you a bit of a backstory here. About maybe five years prior to this moment, as an 18-year-old kid, I was at a church service at the Vine, and I got a word for someone. Now, it wasn't a particular gift that I operated in. It wasn't a particular thing that I felt like I had a lot of, um, a lot of anointing or authority in, but I get a gift and a word for a lady. She was an older lady, but she looked cool for her age. Um, <laughs> and... Oh, it's going to come up a lot. Um... <laughs> She was an older lady. I'm an 18-year-old kid. I have a word for her. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, you know that moment where you have to muster up every amount of courage that you can possibly have, right? And I'm like, you know, she was in her like 40s. I was 18. I was like, oh, I can't do it. oh, I just got to do it. And so I walk up to her during the worship time. And I say, hi, you don't know me, but I, I want to share this word with you. And I started to share this word. And I was kind of doing this like mini preach word thing to her. After about five minutes of me pouring out my soul to this lady and speaking this word of Christ over her, she looks over to me and she says this. She goes, you're not a prophet. I don't accept that word. Imagine as an 18-year-old, right? And I remember thinking to myself, wow, okay. I mean, I respected, knew this person. They were older, wiser, been Christians most of their lives. You're not a prophet. I don't accept your word. The hurt in that was deep because I had stepped out in courage, believing that this was what God wanted. And this woman, older but cool, tore me apart with her words. Deep disappointment. And from that moment onwards, I had taken that gift and I had buried it because I'm not a prophet. Fast forward five years, Hillsong Conference, arms in the air, word right straight away for the woman standing in front of me. And here's the word God said. He said, Andrew, you need to tell that woman that her husband really does love her. (laughs) Now, when that would normally happen, if I was with my wife, I might share with my wife and encourage my wife to share that word with the lady in front of me. But I'm on my own. I'm worshiping away. Andrew, you need to tell this lady in front of you that her husband really does love her. As she's worshiping, I'm like, is she even married? So as she's raising her hands, I'm looking for the ring. Can I have an amen? You need confirmation. I put my fleece down. Does she have a ring, right? No ring on her finger. No nothing. She's kind of young. She's in her maybe early mid-20s. I'm like, wouldn't it be the worst if I kind of leant forward, tapped her on the shoulder, and said, hi, um, we don't know each other, uh, but God wants you to know that your husband really loves you. I'm not married. Have a great conference. You know, like, <laughs> like. <laughs> so I'm worshiping away. I have this word. Here's what goes through my mind. I am not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. It's not a gift I have. And so I carry on worshiping, slightly guilty, but I carry on worshiping. And God's got such a great sense of humor, doesn't he? As I carry on worshiping, he gives me a word for the man standing next to me on my right. And here's the word. He says, oh, Andrew, you need to tell the man standing on your right that the Holy Spirit is about to break out in his church. It's going to be like an Ezekiel 47 moment where it's going to be like a river, like a flood of the Holy Spirit flooding through his church. And so I'm worshiping away and I'm sneaking glances at the guy on my right to see if he looks like a pastor. I don't know what pastors are supposed to look like, right? But I'm, I'm kind of checking him out, you know? And, and this guy does not look like a pastor. He's got like this massive beer belly. He's got like a really bushy beard. He's got like a leather jacket on. He looks like a Hell's Angel motorcycle <laughs> guy. I'm like, why is he even here? You know, like that kind of look, right? I'm worshiping away. I'm like checking him out. He's worshiping away, but he's suddenly realizing that this weird guy next to him keeps <laughs> glancing at him. And so he starts to kind of look at me. And I'm looking at him, and, and he starts to turn to me. And I start to turn to him, and my heart is beating really fast. Andrew, you got to tell him that the Holy Spirit's about to burst out in his church. It's going to be a flood like Ezekiel 47. And I turn to him, and he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him. And rather than give him the word, here's honest to God what happens. We're looking at each other, and we just spontaneously hugged. (laughs) We just start hugging. And, like, my, my mouth is right next to his ear at this point, right? And I could whisper... Nicely, Hey, you're a pastor. The Lord has a word for you, you know. And here's what goes to my mind. I am not a prophet. That's not a gift I have. And so we hug, <laughs> pat each other on the back, and then we carry on <laughs> worshiping. I get home that night at the hotel and I tell the team about this. I tell them, I had this word for this woman in front of me about her husband. And I had this word for this weird guy next to me about being a pastor and all this kind of stuff. And I'm sharing it. And my team is like, you are a loser, you know? They're like, why didn't you tell them those things? And I started to share about this 18 years old and this woman telling me I'm not a prophet and all this. Anyway, the team at the end of the night basically said, look, if you ever see these people again in the conference, you have to share your words. You've got to promise us. that you're. And I'm thinking, 60,000 people. I am never going to see them again, right? So I'm like, mm, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. And I promised to the team. I said, if I see these people ever again, I will give them those words. You know, I went to bed that night. And I'm praying as I'm sleeping, and I said to God, God, if, if I do ever see those people again, I will step out again with some courage, and I will share those words. I went to sleep, woke up the next day, back at the main session on Friday morning, different 30,000 people than the ones that had been with me the day before. And at the beginning of like the pre-roll before the session starts, I'm standing there and I'm scanning the crowd for that woman. And I'm looking around and I only ever saw the back of her head. So I have no idea like how am well but I'm but I'm trusting and I'm looking around and I'm looking for her, can't see her. And then as I'm scanning around the crowd looking, I turn and at the end of the row is the Hell's Angel motorcycle guy from the day before. And at the end of the row, he's standing there and he's looking at me. And he's staring at me, and then he starts to shimmy down the road towards me. And I'm standing down here, and this guy's shimming towards me, and my heart's beginning to beat as well. And before I can say anything to him, he comes up to me, and he says this. He's like, mate, he's Australian, right? He said, mate, you might not remember me from the day before, but we were standing next to each other during worship. You know, like he starts speaking like that, right? And I'm like, yeah, I remember you, you know? And he's like, man, I'll, I'll get out of the Australian accent. He goes, look... He goes, I went to sleep last night, and as I went to sleep, your face came into my mind. And I said to God as I was falling asleep that if I ever see that young man again in the conference, I will speak to him. And here's what God told me to say to you if I was ever to see you again at the conference. You need to know that you're a prophet. He said, there's a gift of prophecy in your life, and you need to know that you're a prophet, And I'm like, sit down, because I've got a word for you. So so he sits down and I'm like, oh, I had this word for you yesterday. Ezekiel 47. I said, you're a pastor of a church and and, and the Holy Spirit's about to pour out in your church. and It's going to be like a flood, like a river in your church. He starts weeping, big, large motorcycle guy, weeping and weeping. As he stops crying, he says to me this. He says, you wouldn't know this, but I'm a pastor of a church, small church, just uh, a number of hours outside of Sydney. And he says, our church is the only church in our our town, and our church is situated, our church building is situated under the main water pipe of our town. And we have just finished this renovation that we raised money for, a lot of money for over a long period of time to renovate our sanctuary. And two weeks ago, the main water pipe burst and flooded our sanctuary. And he said, the water wrecked everything, ruined all of our equipment, um, all the wood that we just laid all began to, to buckle and bend. And he's like, it was the worst pastoral moment of your life, my life. And now you're telling me that the Holy Spirit is about to turn out like a flood, that that was a prophetic symbol of what God's about to do. And he starts crying, and I'm crying, and we're hugging, and it's this most amazing thing. And out of 60,000 people, only our God could do something as crazy as that, right? Hurt, disappointment, shame, regrets and failures that somehow our God knows that when these things take place in our lives, it actually shifts something in how we see about ourselves. It actually changes, and we actually begin to define our identity and define who we are, not by the word of God, by the voice of God, and by the way in which God describes us. We actually begin to define them out of those experience of hurt and disappointment and regret and failure. And there I'm standing in this place where God's looking down on me, and he's saying, man, don't you realize actually what I've created you for? And you've believed that one woman who said that thing, and that is so for years define how you now see yourself. No, 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 no you're a prophet. Some of you in this room, you are currently defining your identity as a human being, male, female, made in the image of God. You're defining it predominantly because of something somebody said so many years ago that has actually hurt you deeply. And I want to bring a word today that I believe will be some freedom and some healing for some of you in this room. I want to bring a word today that I would call this, How long are you going to mourn? During our worship time, um, I was out the back here somewhere, and I got a picture. I want to share the picture I had. Is this okay? I need some water already. Thanks, buddy. Andre, you're cool. (laughs) I saw this picture of, um, and it was a bit of a funny thing. It was like a, a Singaporean park, and somebody was walking through this park, and they were, um, they were just covered in all of these clothes. They had like five pair of jeans on. They had like five T-shirts, five shirts, five jackets. They had multiple ski hats on. They had um, scarves on. And I, think, I was thinking to myself, this is the stupidest picture for Singapore ever because it never gets cold here. And God was saying to me this, that here's what happens with hurts, disappointments, regrets, and shame, and failure that these things actually become like clothes that build up in us and weigh us down. And they happen often in a particular season in our lives. But because we don't have the natural ability to sometimes allow those things to go, to remove them from our lives, we end up actually just storing and building them up with us so that we end up wearing those clothes in the wrong season. And we find ourselves walking in the hot sun of Singapore, wearing a huge amount of clothes that are completely inappropriate for the season in which we are currently in. That's the greatest strategy I believe that the enemy has against our ability to practice together the ways of Jesus in our city. That we would be so burdened and weighed down by all the stuff in the past that we're not able to walk into the future that God has for us. Now, this idea of being able to release these things is very much a common theme in our scriptures. Something that I could have gone to many different passages today to kind of pull out some ideas. But I want to go to one specific one that I think is most relevant for us as this church in this time. Uh, And it's found in 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, um, whether they're uh, electric or paper, I would encourage you uh, to get them out. Um, We're going to take a look at um, a story out of 1 Samuel. Um, specifically right at the start of chapter 16. Now, before we turn to the specific scripture, let me give you some context and background. From 1 Samuel 8 all the way through to 1 Samuel 16, it's a significant moment in biblical history. In chapter 8, Samuel is at the end of his life. Samuel's had an incredible ministry. He's a judge over the people of Israel. He's a prophet over the people. And he has been used by God in some phenomenal ways. Samuel has actually been one of the few judges in all of Israel's experience who has actually mirrored and embraced the heart of God for God's people. He is the archetype judge over Israel. He's had a phenomenal career. He's at the end of his life. And as he's at the end of his life, the people of Israel realize that when he dies, somebody else is going to have to take his place. And they also look at Samuel's children, Samuel's sons, and they realize that those sons are not of the same character or heart as Samuel himself was. And they're worried that when Samuel dies, he'll just automatically pass on to his sons and they will end up being judges over Israel. And so Israel as a community gathers around Samuel. And here's what they say in 1 Samuel chapter 8: They say, Samuel, you are very old. And you are, <laughs> I'm going re- to resist the joke there with Andre. Um, Samuel, you are very old and you are about to die. We don't want you to pass on leadership to your sons. So therefore, would you anoint a king to lead us? They look out over the other nations that were run by monarchies. Israel at this time was still a confederacy of 12 tribes. And this is the point in our biblical history where the shift happens from confederacy to a kingdom. And they say, basically, you're old. You're going to die. We don't want your sons taking over. Give us a king. Hurt, disappointment, regret, shame, failure. Samuel is a human being. And these emotions stir up in his heart. And you can imagine he's at the end of his life, and this is the legacy he's going to lead. And so he goes to God, and he says to God something simple. He says, God, they have rejected me as leader of these people. Can you you sense Samuel's heart? He's feeling rejection right at the end of his life. It would be like if I came up to Tony. And I said, Tony, look, you did a great job during your time, Tony. It was good. It was good. But your time is done. You're, you're, you're old now, Tony. And we need to move on from you. And so there's this pain and this hurt in this man. And he comes to God. And he says, they rejected me. And God speaks over him something so beautiful. He says, no, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me as king over these people. Now, I want you to see the interplay here as we're talking about what is this idea of emotionally healthy spirituality. I want you to see the interplay here, and Andre's picked up on this in his messages, between our human emotions and God's emotion. God identifies with our human emotions. And he says and speaks over this context. And he says, my heart is hurting too. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They rejected me as king because if they want an earthly king, it's basically to say that they're not seeing me as king anymore. And so Jesus and Samuel have this connection point around this emotion of hurt and disappointment. And as they're beginning to have this thing, God says to Samuel, look, if this is what the people want, look, I am bigger than these people. My ways are better than these people. My redemptive uh, ways, my redemptive history is not going to stop because of what these people want. If they want a king, sure, we will bring a king. And guess what? I will bring my savior through the line of this kingship. I will take a broken, faulty thing of thinking and of hurt and emotion, and I will reconstitute it to be the glory of God in this place. And so through the anointing, God says to Samuel, fill your horn with oil. A a horn was what a prophet and judge would carry with them, and they would fill it with anointing oil, and they would come up to someone like Andre, and they would pour it over him and say, you're anointed to lead these people in this place at this time. And so God says him, fill your horn with oil, and I'm going to send you to anoint this person that I've chosen to be king. And this is the person of Saul. Now, Saul, on paper, was the perfect leader for God's people. He was good-looking. He was tall. He was rugged. He was a great warrior. I mean, if you were to have a list of things that you wanted for a leader of God's people, this man ticked every box. And so Samuel goes and pours oil over him. And remember, this is probably for Samuel. He's thinking the last act that I will do as a judge over these people. This is my swan song. This is my final ministry move. I'm anointing this man. And once I've done that, I can begin to move away into the shadows. This person will then be the leader of Israel. This is Samuel's deep, weighty, important final act of his leadership. Do you see that? Okay, Samuel uh, Saul starts out pretty well as a leader. You can have a look later at chapters 9 through to about 15. He starts out pretty good. He does some good things. He looks after the poor. He looks after the oppressed, worships Yahweh. He understands God's heart for his people. But then something begins to take place. A shift happens in his heart. This so happens with the seduction of power in leadership. He goes from other-centered love to self-love. He shifts from this idea of being here as a servant of Yahweh for the people who are oppressed to suddenly beginning to think that the people are here to serve him. He erects statues of himself. If Andre ever starts erecting statues of himself around Singapore, please be concerned. (laughs) He starts to erect statues of himself around the main cities of Israel so they could come and pay respect to him rather than the full respect and glory that should go to God. Are you with me? So, towards the end of these chapters, God is deeply grieved by the reality that he made Saul king over the people. He sees the seduction that has happened in Saul's heart, and it deeply hurts him. And so he comes to Samuel, and he says, Samuel, we need to make a change. We need to shift things again. There's a new person that I want you now to go and give the anointing to. And interestingly... Samuel begins the story in a place of hurt and disappointment. They've rejected me, God. Samuel ends the story in a place of hurt and disappointment. Because here's how Samuel hears what God is saying. He's realizing, wow, the last act of my ministry was a failure. Samuel is struggling now in this part of the story in what the Bible describes as mourning for Saul. Mourning for him. Because God has lifted that anointing off of Saul, also mourning for himself. That the reality is he went and anointed someone that didn't work out, that didn't come through, that didn't actually be the one. And Samuel was somewhat responsible for it. This is how Samuel's feeling. And so he's grieving. He's hurting. He's now feeling not just hurt and disappointment at the start of the story, but now regret and shame and failure for having been a part of a move that didn't quite work out. I wonder if anybody else in this room feels that way at times. I want to pick up the story uh, right at this point where Samuel's wrestling with how he's feeling. Is this okay still so far? Can I pray for us before we read the scriptures? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we gather in this room and each one of us can also understand hurt and disappointment and shame and rejection and failure, that there's no one in this room that doesn't have experienced those emotions. And Lord, in and of themselves, those emotions are not wrong. They are God-given human emotions. But Lord, so often those emotions begin to shape our identity. They begin to tell us who we are. And they begin to shape and form our operation in your kingdom. And Lord, as we unpack this for this group of people here this morning, I pray that you would speak to us. And I pray for freedom in the name of Jesus. I believe, Lord, that this word today will shift some people who have been wearing ski hats and scarves and jackets for far too long. Lord, help us to shed the clothes that you do not want us to be wearing. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. So we're going to pick it up in uh, 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 34, and I'm going to read through to the verse 1 of 16. It says this, Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Geber of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. Everybody say mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Do you see the combination here between human emotion and God's divine expression of emotion? So Samuel mourning for Saul, God grieving that he had made Saul uh, king over Israel. Verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1 is our key verse. Then the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way for I am sending you now to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. In 2006, my wife and I quit our jobs. I was working in investment banking. My wife was working in um, childcare. She was a teacher. And we quit our jobs because we felt like God was calling us into being pastors. And so we left our jobs and we moved to New Zealand. My wife is from New Zealand. And we moved there to go to Bible school. Now, I had pretty much grown up in Hong Kong all my life. And when you live in Hong Kong, you don't ever really get a car. Uh, It's a little bit like Singapore. I know in Singapore, it's really expensive to run a car here, right? In Hong Kong, it's not so much expensive. It's just that public transport is amazing. It's cheap. And most people that were my age at the time, I was in my late 20s, don't own cars in Hong Kong. I had grown up as a man, and I'd never had that ritual or that that kind of rite of passing in age where you get to own your first car. And for men, that's also usually a significant time. It's like, wow, this is my time to get a car. I never had that experience. And so we moved to New Zealand, and we realized that, you know, in Hong Kong, everybody walks everywhere. In New Zealand, you can't walk anywhere because everywhere is miles away from everything. There are also no people in New Zealand. And so you also have to have a vehicle that gets you from A to B. So we go there. I'm super excited that for the first time in my life, I can buy a car. So my wife and I, we wrote down separate lists of what we're looking for in a car now you can imagine my list had things like needs to be red, because we all know that red cars are faster. Needs to be red. It has to have certain size tires. If it can have a spoiler on the back, that would be great. It had to have a really banging stereo so I could play great music. Like this was my list. My wife's list was economical on the petrol. Uh, A large kind of trunk so we can put all the luggage in it. You know, like she was like car seat if we ever have children. Like that was her thing. Like she was totally thinking practical. I was totally thinking this needs to be cool. All right. So we have our list, and we, uh, where Chris is from, she's from this place called Hamilton. Our Bible school is in Auckland, but Hamilton's about an hour and a half south, and we're in Hamilton, and Hamilton's famous for one thing and one thing only. It's a great place to buy a second-hand car. There's this one street in Hamilton that's about two miles long, and there's car yards at every point on the way on this street, all the way down one street, all the way down the other. So we had our two lists, and we had been praying, and we had a budget, and we were asking God, God, uh, just you know, lead us to the right car. We go down to the street one day, we enter into the first car yard, and I turn right, and I look at the first car, and it is like absolutely perfect for us. It's red, and it has all of the practical things that my wife wants, and it's in budget, and we look at this car, and we're like, oh my gosh, it's like God has rolled out the red carpet for us. It's like, welcome to New Zealand. Here's your car. And so uh, the, the guy from the sales yard, he comes over, and he's like, oh, yeah, you want to take it for a test ride? And I'm like, yeah, great. So we get in the car. We go out for this test ride. It runs perfectly. It's really great on economy, on the petrol. I mean, this is everything we wanted. We drive back into the car yard, and Chris, Chris is thinking, like, we're done. Like, this is awesome. We're off. And here's what I'm thinking. As I open the door and I close it again, logic kind of leaves me uh, and or or kind of like this idea of like, oh, wow, God's provided leaves me. And this idea of kind of like, there must be a better deal in the city than this. So the car yard guy walks over. He's like, so do you want to take it? Like, what do you think? And I'm like, yeah, the eh, car's OK. Yeah. But this is the first place we've been to in all of New Zealand. And uh, there's a whole street here. We're going to go out. We're going to look at some other cars and and we may come back later. And he was like, OK, fine, cool. Yeah, great. So we go out. And we spend the whole rest of the day going after into car yard after car yard after car yard. And we don't ever find a car that is as good as that first car. Never find one that is good, that works well, that's in the budget, that has all the boxes ticked. No, no, no. It gets towards the end of the day. It's about 4.30 in the afternoon, which in New Zealand, everything shuts at 5.00. It's like martial law happens at five. Everybody goes home and you never see them again until the next day. So we're about 4.30. We know the day's ending. We go right back to that one particular car yard. I walk in there and the guy comes out of his little hut and he's kind of walking over a little swag, right? And I'm like, hey, yeah, we're back. And, you know, hey, if we couldn't actually find that car again, um, we'd love to take it. And he's like, oh, you know a lady came in right after you guys actually and she took it for a test ride and and you know she paid cash and uh so well, you know and i felt like the biggest loser ever i felt a kind of shame and failure that i wouldn't say is what samuel's feeling but i think him and samuel and i are kind of like feeling the same kind of thing like Like I failed, like God had provided the perfect thing. And then I didn't take it. I didn't jump on it. And I'm kind of now left in this. And I felt such an idiot. I'd let my wife down. And then for the next two weeks, I was searching everywhere in New Zealand for a car like this. I could not find a car. About two weeks later, I'm online on some car site and I'm scanning through these cars and every car that comes up, I'm like, it's not as good as that first one. It's not as good as that first one. It's not as cheap as that first, you know, and like every, like that first Car became like the the litmus test for all other cars that I would ever see. Are you with me? And so I'm sitting there, and then God breaks in like sometimes He has to do, and here's what God says He goes, Andrew, how long are you going to mourn for that car? Because I've got a new car for you. But you're not going to be able to move into this new car that I have if you're going to continue to mourn for the one that has gone for you. God shows up to Samuel. And in only the way that God can do, he says, Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? You you see, there was something that was going on in Samuel's life where, where he wasn't able to be able to realize that God had a future for him. And the reason why he wasn't able to realize that there was another step in his ministry. Remember, he thought he was at the end of that ministry. And he he was so overwhelmed by this mourning and this pain and this hurt of the failure that he had done with the anointing of Saul. And he was so mourning and focused on that, that he failed to realize he's actually standing in the most critical turning point of all human history. I want you to see this, church. Because just ahead of Samuel was David. But Samuel was so consumed by the mourning of his past that he was blind to the excitement of his future, to the importance of his future, to what was just ahead. And he's so caught up in this that God is standing over him and God sees his hurt. He sees his pain. He sees the reality of what he's going in and for. But God also sees Jesus Christ on the cross, God also sees that actually Samuel is about to step into the most critical turning point and crossroad of all history. That Samuel, when he finally can lift his eyes up and begin to view his future again, is about to move by the power of the Holy Spirit to anoint the one who would be the very bloodline that would actually bring in the Savior, Jesus. Samuel had no idea. Samuel was so distraught with the hurt and the failure and the shame and the and regret of his soul that he wasn't able to see his David. So God shows up and he says, how long, Samuel, are you going to mourn? How long are you going to walk around with clothes that are not for the season you're in? Now, I want to I talk on a couple of things here before we close. Is that all right? Here's the first thing. Notice what God says. He doesn't say, why are you mourning Saul? He says, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? Now, this is really important. And this links in with what Andre's been preaching over this series of emotionally healthy spirituality. See, if God had showed up and said, why are you mourning Saul? It would have been a a condemning voice of God. It would have been, um, Samuel, your emotions are wrong. He doesn't say that because actually it was right for Samuel to mourn. He had been hurt. There had been things that had gone wrong. It did feel like a failure to him. God understood that there is a place for mourning. God understood that actually that feeling, that emotion of grief and hurt and disappointment was one that was very real for Samuel. And Samuel needed to sit in it. That the emotion itself was not wrong. That there, there is a time where actually it's healthy for us. It would have been unhealthy for Samuel to have kind of seen what happened to Saul and kind of gone, oh, well, on we go with the next thing. Actually, Samuel should have been hurt. And his expression of that hurt was actually the very thing that would eventually lead him towards the David that God has for him. See, see Jesus, many years later, would write this in Matthew 5, 4. He would say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In other words, those that mourn and hurt and have regret and shame and disappointment. Some of you in this room where those words have been spoken over you and they've hurt you and they've held you back. And you know those things, the baggages, the clothes that you're still wearing and you feel like, wow, man, like, why is this happening to me? God stands over you and he goes, man, you're actually blessed. Because I'm about to do something in you. I'm about to heal and release you. I'm about to bring the comfort that you so need. Man, the morning is important. The Bible would say, hey, morning lasts for a night. It does last. It is there. But joy comes in the morning. So here's the thing for me. My wife and I got married when we were 23, 22. We were very young. I'm now a little bit older. But I'm cool. Now, about, about 10, 15 years ago, we started to try for children, and we thought, man, we're going to be awesome parents, and we're going we're to produce lots of great kids, and I remember actually God saying to me, Andrew, it's time to start a family, and by that word of God, I began to try to have children with Chris. After about two years of not being able to have children, we went into a years-long test of discovering why, and I believed that probably the issue was with my wife. Because for a man, only one thing can go wrong. But for a woman, there's a chance that lots of things could go wrong. And so I remember walking into the doctor's room that first day, holding my wife's hand and thinking to myself, Lord, you know, this is probably going to be a difficult journey for my wife. You know, Lord, give me the strength to be the husband I need to be. You know, like I was just like convinced. And we did the blood tests and we went back for the results of the blood test. And basically the results of the blood test said, this is what the doctor said. He turned to my wife and he said, Christine, he said, you You are one of the healthiest people I've ever seen. You could reproduce children all over the place. That was his very words. I thought it was a little inappropriate, but that's what he said. I was like, really? (laughs) You could reproduce children all over the place. His very words. He then turns to me and he says, Andrew, your results suggest that there might be an issue with you. And that entered me into a years-long journey of of discovering what was going on biologically with me. And at the end of that year, I had a very invasive... We're friends here, by the way, so I'm going to be honest. I had a very invasive surgery. And at the end of that surgery, that was the only way to prove whether I was producing sperm or not. I was an anomaly that this fertility clinic had never experienced. Um, Most men are deemed infertile if they have less than 20 million sperm in an ejaculation. We're friends, right? We are right now. Andre's like, never again, inviting this guy back. (laughs) (laughs) this is emotionally healthy right now andre um 20 if you have less than 20 million you're deemed infertile i had zero in all the tests that that i had done and so this surgery was to find out whether there was any possibility that i might be able to produce sperm and so i remember walking across this basketball court And I get a phone call, and I look at the phone, and it's our nurse from the infertility clinic. And I answer the call, and here's her very words. She goes, Andrew, your test results are back from the surgery, and you will never be able to father children ever. Those were her very words. Real pastoral care heart that this woman had. (laughs) You will never be able to father children ever. Now, here's the thing. It was right for me to mourn. Here's what I went into. I went into a season where I mourned the children I would never have, that I mourned. It felt to me like a death. I I literally felt like I was having a funeral in my heart for the children that I would never produce. That my wife and I had had dreams for many years. Wow, what would our children look like? Although I hope they had this in your personality, that in my personality, maybe your hair, blah, blah, blah. We had had all those wonderful, lovey kind of conversations about the future of our children. And here we were with the reality that we would never be able to do that. It was right for me to mourn. But God did need to show up at one point, sometime later, about a year later, and say, how long are you going to mourn, Andrew? Because I've got a beautiful adopted girl called Mia for you. God shows up to Samuel and he doesn't say, why are you mourning? And some of you in this room, you're hurt. You've got some regrets. You've got some failures. You've got some shames. And you're dealing with it. Maybe they're fresh. Maybe somebody said something to you recently and it's hurting and it's there for you. And I want to give you the permission to hurt and to heal. That's what God is doing with Samuel. He's giving him the permission to hurt and heal to heal. So the first thing is that, here's the second thing real quick. God also realizes that at some point, a line in the sand has to happen and that we have to stop the mourning in order for new life to begin. That we have to at some point shift from that mourning to that embrace. When I sleep, I sleep lying on my arm. Does anybody else do this? You just lie on your side, lie on your arm, arm under your pillow. People are like nodding their heads, like, no, I don't sleep like that. I sleep lying on my arm. Here's what happens two to three times a week. Because I'm lying on my arm, I actually cut off all the blood circulation from my shoulder to the tips of my fingers. And here's what happens when I do that, right? When I do that, I I wake up at at about four in the morning, and I suddenly realize, "Uh uh-oh. And I can touch my arm, and it feels completely dead. It's really freaky. It's like somebody else's arm is in my bed. It's like, ah! And then I realize it's even though I can't feel it, it is actually my arm. Now, here's the problem. When your arm is completely cut off from its circulation, it has no ability to push off so that you can turn over. So the only way I can relieve it is by doing this, grabbing my face. And and then I have to do this. And I pull myself to the other side of the bed, and my arm flops like this. And I finally have relieved it. And after about five minutes, it gets all tingly. The blood begins to flow. And then I can finally move it again. And I can do it to the other arm. Because now I'm lying on the (laughs) arm. God shows up to Samuel. He says, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? Because I've got something ahead of you in your future. But as you're mourning for Saul, you become blind to the importance of your future. God is basically saying at some point, Samuel, and this point is now, it was okay for you to mourn. It was right for you to mourn. You're hurt. Embrace it. Walk into it. Understand it. Allow me to comfort you through it. But the line in the sand is here now for you, Samuel, and you need to relieve the pressure. You need to release this thing from you. and You need to now enable yourself for new life to flow in you. Some of you have been lying on things that have happened to you in your past, and you've got now dead arms in your soul. You've got dead arms in your spirit. And those things are beginning to define and have defined who you are for far too long. And I've come here today to say to you, how long are you going to mourn? That God has a release. How do we get release? Well, here it is. Have a look right here at the end of the passage. It says this. It says, How long are you going to mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I I want you to realize this. This is the how. We understand now the why. Here's the how. God says to Samuel, Fill that horn again with oil. Now, Remember, for Samuel, he thought he was at the end of his ministry and his career. He thought it was all over. He thought his anointing of Saul was the end. And then not only that, but in the hurt and the pain that he had struggled with from that point onwards, he's now in the point where he thinks his last act was a failure. He's mourning Saul. He's mourning himself. God shows up and says, fill your horn with oil again. For Samuel, here's what that communicates. I have not given up on you. Your job is not over. I don't look down on you and say, man, this person has some shame, regret, and failure. Yeah, something went wrong. Oh, he's disqualified now from my kingdom. No. God looks down on him and says, guess what? There's another thing I can get you to do. There's a future that you can be. You're standing at the very turning point of biblical history. I'm about to change everything in human history. You're going to anoint the one who will be the very bloodline that will bring Jesus Christ. My redemption of the world is starting when you finally stop mourning. So fill your horn with oil. Samuel would have felt like, wow, God is going to use me again. He would have raised himself up in his spirit and said, my time is again that I am not washed out. I am not forgotten. I am not burnt out. No, I can be filled again. There's a future ahead of me. See, some of you in this room, there are Davids ahead of you, but you will never get there because you're holding on to your souls. (laughs) And so he says, how long, Samuel? Oh, for there's something so special and beautiful right here for you. Fill your home with all. This is basically like God saying this. Him saying, "How long will you mourn, Saul?" Is God saying, "How long are you going to go without allowing the Holy Spirit to heal that part of your life?" See, there's difference between sin and wounds. Sin is something we confess. Sin is something we do, and we need to confess it. Wounds are things that happen to us often because of someone else's sin, and you can't confess a wound. But you can invite the Holy Spirit in to heal a wound. And so he's saying to him here, hey, Samuel, are you willing and ready to actually make that change? Are you willing to say, I have this wound and I've been holding on to it. This woman said to me all those years ago, I am not a prophet. So when the Holy Spirit speaks to me, I define my response out of what this woman said rather than what God says about me. And I realize that that is wounded and hurt me. Lord, would you come in and fix and heal? I can't I can't get rid of it. It's something that I've been carrying around me. I realize I'm wearing the wrong clothes for the wrong season. I need you again, Lord. There's this thing in Chinese culture called ad. Oil. Do you guys know that here in Singapore? I get emails from my congregation members. And at the bottom of the email, they're like, add oil, Pastor Andrew. And I'm I'm always like, my noodles are oily enough. Thank you very much. I don't like, and it's almost like God is standing over Samuel. He's like, add oil. There's more for you here. And I want to speak this over you. And I'm going to close with this. There are many of you in this room where there are Davids in your future and you're at danger of missing out on these incredible things God has because you're hanging on to your souls. And I wonder whether today it might be a moment where the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, your heart is beating, and you're beginning to think to yourself, I have a wound that I need to invite the Holy Spirit, the oil of God, to fill this horn again. So you are a horn of God in Singapore in the sphere of influence that God has for you. And I believe he's standing over you, some of you today and he's saying it's time to be filled again. The time of mourning is over, but joy comes in the morning. Those that mourn, they're blessed because they will be comforted. And some of you today, man, this is a word in season for you. Because there is a release that's about to happen that is actually going to bring you into the very thing that God wanted. Jesus was God's great horn of oil who came down to this world, gave up his life, paid the price for our sin on the cross, was born again. Why? So that the spirit of God might be poured out on you and I. Christ went to the cross so that we could recognize our hurts, not run from them, but walk in a season of it, as I've been saying in this message, but also so that we would realize that at one point, Point we don't carry it around with us anymore because the cross of Christ has paid for it. I wonder whether we might be able to pray and do some ministry around that today. Here's what I encourage you to do. Just take a moment just to close your eyes. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful. So grateful for your presence, your power, your tenderness. So grateful, Holy Spirit, that you speak. And Lord, I want to lift up these beautiful men and women in this room right now. Childs of you, brothers and sisters in the kingdom, sons and daughters of the Father. And Father, in this room, many of us, Lord, this is a word for us today. Lord, the hurts and the shame and the disappointment and the regrets and the failures that we've been carrying around with us, Lord, you've been with us every single step of the way. You've met us in those places. But for some of us, they have remained in us and have defined us. And you stand over this church today and you stand over each person here and in that tender and yet challenging voice. You say, how long are you going to mourn? It's time to fill your home with oil and be on your way. And Lord, I believe that you want to cut off some things that the enemy has weighed some people down with in this room today. And here's what I want you to do. I'm not going to invite you forward, but I want, we're going to do family ministry with one another today. And here's what I want us to do is our eyes are closed right now. I want us to do one prophetic physical act because this is about making a change. It's about letting go of Saul so that we can receive David. And so here's how in a moment I'm going to encourage you to do that. If that's you today, if you realize that there is something that you have not been letting go of, but today you want to stand and say, yes, Holy Spirit, fill this wound, come and touch this wound. It's hard, it's difficult, but I need this release today. Then in a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand. And when you stand, that's your prophetic movement. That's you saying, that's me, Lord. And what we're going to do is we're going to minister to all these people that will stand. And we're going to come around them and love on them and pray for them and speak life into them. And we're going to believe for the Davids. We're going to pray for the Davids. We're going to pray that. We would all as one body and one ministry and one family cheer each other on for the future. The Lord wants to take off the hats and the coats and the scarves. And he wants to throw them down. And he wants to make you fit for the season that you are in. And so if you want some prayer today for that, I want to encourage you now to do that prophetic thing and just to stand. And as you stand, you just stand, open your hands. It's your way of saying, Lord, this is me today. This is my time. This is my need for inviting you in. And as you stand in this moment, you stand before Christ and you say, Lord, I need this. I need to have you come again and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I invite you into this place of wound and hurt and shame and regret. And so if that's you today, I want to invite you now just to stand with me. And we will stand together and we will pray. And we will believe for the great things that Holy Spirit wants to do. Thank you, Lord. That's great. There's people standing all over the place. Just take a moment for anyone else that would like to just stand and say, yeah, this is me today. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. those of us that are still seated, it's our chance to be able to minister to our brothers and sisters. What a gift it is to be able to minister the life of Christ to people. And so, if you're standing, just keep your eyes closed, your hands open, just ask the Holy Spirit to come. For those of you that are still seated, you might want to now just turn and have a look at who might be standing near you. And as you see someone, maybe you know them, maybe you don't, I want to encourage you just to begin to minister. Just put your hand upon them. Just begin to speak life Just begin to pray. Just begin to ask the Holy Spirit to move. Just begin to stand with your brothers and your sisters and speak words of encouragement. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Father, we come against the work of the enemy that would try to weigh us down and hold us back and keep us trapped. Father, we release now the Holy Spirit in a special way over these people. No more mourning in the name of Jesus. Lord, we cut off We cut off the, the ways in which we've allowed this hurt and this pain and this regret and this failure and this disappointment to begin to shape us, to begin to speak to us, to begin to change and turn our identity. And Lord, we confess, Lord, that. And in this moment, Lord, we say thank you for the ability, Lord. That you bring to take us from one place to another, from a place of hurt and, he- and mourning to a place of healing and new life. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, we need you. Father, I pray for each person who's standing here that you would now fill them, Lord. Fill them, Lord. Fill them with the Holy Spirit. Lord, bring your comfort that you promised at the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Lord, we pray for the comfort and the power of your name and your spirit we cut off the ways in which these people have been weighed down with things that you did not want them to carry. And Lord, now we pray that you would bring the image of God, Lord, this humanity, this way that you have created them to be, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Just begin to speak words that the Lord might say to you, just encouragement and life. Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Freedom, Lord. Freedom, Lord. Freedom, Lord. There have been some things that have been said over some people in this room where uh, mothers and fathers have said things years ago that have deeply hurt and shaped you. And I feel this is the moment. This is the turning point for some of you in this room where a father or mother, maybe well-meaning, well-intentioned, they have said something over you that is not right. It is not who you are as Christ sees you. It is not the man or the woman that Christ has made you to be. And those words have deeply hurt you and they've impacted the relationships around you in your life today. And this is your moment. Come, Holy Spirit. This is your moment. Father, words, Lord, like little arrows and daggers that have hurt people. We cut them off now in the name of Jesus. Lord, words that have tried to shape and form, Lord, something that somebody is not. We speak, you are a daughter of the King. You are a son of the King. You are somebody formed and shaped in your mother's womb. That the Lord has created you as a masterpiece in His eyes. That you are shaped and formed for a future Where God will lead you and move you and use you again. You are not the words that have been spoken over you. You are what the Holy Spirit says about you. You are what the Word of God says about you. That is who you are. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit.